You're listening to Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, a podcast about life through the lens of music. Welcome to the show. I'm Jay Mack in snowy St. Louis, Missouri. And this is Sam Wade out in Los Angeles. With a mouthful of cookies or something. I took a bite at the wrong time. I thought we had a few more seconds before we were starting the show. Nope. Too late. Too late. I would just like to remind our listeners that there's a new show that drops every Wednesday. New episode of Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board. Available on Spotify, Google Podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud. Probably other places we don't know about. But every Wednesday, look for a new episode. You can subscribe to the show. It'll automatically download to your listening device, your phone, your computer, your tablet, whatever it is that you're listening to the show on. And we have a Facebook page. Two Tape Decks, facebook.com slash two tape decks. And Sam, what's our website? Just two tape decks.com? Just two tape decks.com. You go there, it's going to link you right up to the SoundCloud, make it really easy to find. We love getting comments, feedback, send us some topics. We're, we're easy to get a hold of. I would say that we're accessible. I think that's the word that the kids are using now. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Sure. I'm accessible. You're accessible. We are accessible. This show, I'm going to warn you, is going to get, it's going to go down some dark paths, but there's going to be some humor in it, as anything I've ever done, I have to be humorous on some level, but we're not going to, it's not corny stuff, but it's, it's some heady stuff we're getting ready to talk about here. And Sam, you actually turned me onto this documentary, the Heaven's Gate documentary. It's on HBO Max at the moment. Wow. What a head trip that stuff was. There was so much that they talked about in that documentary that I had no clue about. Like, I, I think I, I still feel the same way maybe I did in the 90s when we heard about Heaven's Gate because people just found out about it because they just found the bodies. Yeah. Right? They didn't know. But I didn't realize how much history really 20 years before that there was associated with us. That's what, sho- that's what shocked me is, I mean, like I said, when it hit, I guess it was 90. I've got it pulled up in front of me. It was either 96 or 97. It was around that time. It it came out of nowhere, and at the time there was the Hailbot Hailbop comet going by, and that was in right. the news. I remember people talking about the Hailbop comet. Suddenly, there's this group of let me let me actually pulled up. I'm going to describe to you what on the what on the Wikipedia page they describe Heaven's Gate as. Heaven's Gate was an American UFO religious cult based near San Diego, California. It was founded in 1974, led by Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles. On March 26, 1997, deputies of the San Diego County Sheriff's Department discovered the bodies of 39 members of the group, including that of Applewhite, in a house in the San Diego suburb of Rancho Santa Fe. They had participated in a mass suicide, a coordinated series of ritual suicides in order to reach what they believed was an extraterrestrial spacecraft following Comet Hale-Bopp. That, pretty su- that sums it up pretty much right there. Yeah, it, it really does. And what the documentary does is it really unpacks it because this is something um, that, you know, a lot of people bought into over the course of, of 20 years of them building this. And uh, it actually began um, up as like a, a meeting in Oregon, which I thought was really interesting. And this is part of like the larger picture of, of what we're talking about tonight um, is uh, there was another documentary recently. I think you saw this, too. Um, called Wild Wild Country. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Rajneesh Purim. 
Is that is that? I'm, That's right. I'm hoping. I, I'm it's sorry. Pure, I can't... Purim, Purim, something, maybe Purim. something like that. Rajneesh Purim. But, yeah. I mean, yeah. And so, like, if you haven't seen either of these documentaries and you're interested in things like this, you got to see them. They're must watches because what's incredible on both accounts, and I think even more in large scale with the, with the whole Wild Wild Country documentary, is there is very little that's known in pop culture anymore or in general knowledge about what these cults really were. And I mean, I don't know about you, but when I watched the one about Rajneesh Purim and or Purim and uh, and saw that this stuff happened, I was like, how did I not know about this? Did you did you feel that way? I did. Here, let me read the Wikipedia page here. Rajneesh Purim was a religious intentional community. I guess that's another way of saying commune in Wasco County, Oregon. Incorporated as a city between 1981 and 1988, its population consisted entirely of Rajneeshis, followers of the spiritual teacher Rajneesh, later known as Osho, Osho. Its citizens and leaders were responsible for launching the 1984 Rajneesh bioterror attacks, the single largest bioterrorist attack in the United States, as well as the planned 1985 Rajneesh assassination plot in which they conspired to assassinate Charles Turner the then United States attorney for the District of Oregon. So these people, this is deep stuff. This is not this is not people in like Kumbaya around a campfire. This is some serious stuff. Well, it's like growing up, I heard about things like Jim Jones and David Koresh in the in the Waco, Texas incident. Do you remember uh, you know, Jim Jones, for those of you that, that don't realize it, that's for the Jonestown massacre, like that's where the phrase drink the Kool-Aid comes from. Yep. Yep. Right. Like, you're, let me read about Jim Jones here real quick. Yeah, go for it. So Jim Jones, Jim Warren Jones was an American cult leader, preacher and self-professed faith healer. He launched the People's Temple in Indiana during the 1950s. Jones and his inner circle orchestrated a mass murder suicide. Same thing that happened in uh, Heaven's Gate. Yep. Uh, a mass murder suicide of himself and his followers in his jungle commune at jo- Jonestown, um, Guyana, on November 18th, 1978. Like, how many people? That one was like an insane amount of people, wasn't it? I want to say, I could be wrong, but it was, it was multiple hundreds. Multiple hundreds. Wow. You, you can probably I mean, look it up. Like, how? Well, it's like when you, when you see these things, some people might stand back and say, well, how is it that like people could buy into this? Like how would how do they get to the point where like, you know, it seems so obvious from the outside looking in that it doesn't seem real, but I also think that something that's really interesting about watching these documentaries is it it gives you hopefully some empathy into seeing in how people could follow down these paths because I know from my own experience growing up, we've touched on things from from time to time in our conversations, J Mac, where um, there was you know some systematic control happening with with these types of things. Yep. I mean, that's a really big word to say, but maybe I'll give you an example. And this is something we should talk about, is uh, music being a tool to control. Does that, that make any kind of That sounds it, crazy, right? It does, but but it's actually, the, one of, for me, one of the sickest forms of control, because music should be good, and people turn it as kind of a manipulative device, which is really, it's offensive to me. On, on many levels, because music is beautiful. Music is magic, as we talked about in the, our outtake a few minutes ago. And to use something so beautiful and spiritual to manipulate the minds of otherwise innocent people or whatever, it's, it's, 
It's despicable. I hate it. Yeah, I, I would agree when it gets to that kind of stage um, where it, you know, okay, let me, let me step back. So like one of the things that I, I think could be a common story, um, if you look into some of, 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 of these religious uh, sects, and, and we don't talk about religion much on the show, and I don't want to dive too deep into no, it. But, no, I, I agree. Yeah, like, but, you know, I mean, we both grew up in religious households, and, yes. we, and we got our start in music by playing in church. So, I mean, there was some of that overlap there. Um, but it is one of those things that, like, growing up where where sex was also used as, as some manipulated, uh, a manipulating tool, like, you know, and it stems from a good thing, like wanting to be holy or wanting to be yeah. pure, um, which is, you know, it's a good thing to to achieve. You know, morality is an important part of society to keep us all from killing each other, and, you know. And certainly Christianity is not the only or first religion to no. practice, what would you call it, abstinence or like clean living, whatever you want to call it. Absolutely. Like, the you know, these two things, music um sex identity all these things are ubiquitous very common um across these kind of systematic approaches where you find a lot of people following something that turns out to be like a wild idea and i think that it really stems to stems from the idea of removing the sense of self you know what i mean like if you can like make people think the same and look the same and not question um, their own like impulses, you can yes. get them to kind of like corral behind ideas. What do you think? Well, exactly what I was going to say with like, for instance, the Heaven's Gate cult and the Rajneesh Purim, you have to break down the sense of self because otherwise nobody would fall for it. Nobody is right. going to... I used to do another podcast and one of the guys that I used to podcast with would always say we would do news stories and he would he would say... Where you got to be at in your life to do X, Y, Z, referring to some knucklehead in the news. <laughs> and that was kind of a humorous thing, but this is not. I just wonder where have you got to be in your life to embrace a suicidal death cult, basically. Well, I tell you what, like watching um, Heaven's Gate, it, it was easy to to start to uh, empathize with with some of what these people experienced. Oh, like, absolutely. They, they were they were victims on, on a certain level. Yeah, and one of the points that it makes too um, is is one of the uh, one of the people who was uh, was one of the talking heads on the show, just bringing insight. Um, they were saying that they even felt like Marshall himself was a victim of it, like this idea of of wanting to achieve um, this higher level and going onto the spaceship that would take them to the next spot was, you know, incredibly powerful concept. Well, and here's one thing. Tying it back to the the sex thing, Marshall Applegate, yeah, was Applegate Applewhite. Applewhite was a closeted homosexual. He he felt shameful yeah. about how he how his brain was wired, and so he felt the need to push it back, push it back, push it back. And I don't know for a fact that all or even most of these people in this group struggle with that but i know there was at least one or two other people on that documentary that struggled with their sexuality and so rather than be you 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 lose yourself out of shame or guilt or whatever and you bury you you basically give control over yourself your body your thought your your mind 
to the group think. And I mean, yep. like I said, I don't even know how much what what they what did they call him? Did they call him Doe? Marshall Apple? Did yeah, they, that was so Doe and Doe and me. Or, Doe, Doe and T. Doe and, and T. They, they were with him and and uh Bonnie. his his partner. Yeah, who yeah, who was uh the why or the 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 nurse that he met in the hospital when he was recovering. Yeah. Uh, and where they got the idea for this. It, it's, 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 it's really interesting um, because I think that you bring up a really good point about f- either feeling a sense of shame for something or feeling um, some kind of identity crisis is a universal thing. Right. It yep. doesn't have to be part of a cult for people to be manipulated by these things. Nope. It happens. Is very prevalent on social media now. And I think, you know, this is something that people, as they live, live a while, they start to look back and be like, ah, it must be so much harder for the younger generation. It's like a thing that people say, like these kids, but I actually think it's true. Um, Especially kids that are coming of age right now um, during a pandemic Um, is it, there's so many more voices and things tugging at them to say, this is what it means to be you that I think it's, it's probably harder and harder to find a sense of self. And when those types of things are happening in society or inside of a person, I think it's completely natural um, to be pulled into something that on its face seems like something amazing and beautiful and great. But when people take it and use it for their agenda, um, that's where it starts to turn sour. And people get manipulated and hurt. Yeah, and I would say, watching the Heaven's Gate thing, if you didn't know the end of the story, you might say, well, they're just misfits hanging out together. Because this went on for the better part of 20 years, these people that would get together and, I guess, seek enlightenment. And there was, like, the UFO thing. and But what the end of, the end of it was horrific. Almost 40 people mass suicide. How did this happen? How did people so lose themselves that they were willing to buy a load, a load of horse crap, basically, and lose their life? It's the group think, and it's losing self. And I would say the same thing with the Rajneesh Purim. They weren't a suicide cult. They were, just to give a little background on them, they were originally from India. Uh, this guy, uh, Osho, or whatever his name was, Rajneesh, Came from a commune mm-hmm. in India, and he basically they basically got thrown out of India. I don't remember the exact details. Maybe you can fill me in on that. I want to say it was tax related or something. Yeah, but I also think that that was happening in tandem with that section of Beatles history where they're hanging out with the Maharaji. Yep. yep. This, this was another guy that had something like that going on. It just didn't achieve national fame until later. So they or international fame. So they here. Let me pull. Let me pull it up here. So they moved to the town of Wasco County, Oregon, and they basically had a little commune. And let's just say the locals were not happy when this group of hippie, dirty hippies moved in. And at first, at first, I was like, I felt like watching it. That maybe it was just kind of like the old white guys not liking something new. I mean, right. Like, like the, the town folks, salt of the earth. Don't mess with like the way that we've, you know, whatever, you know, don't mess with our traditions, whatever the Hollywood version of that is. Right. Yeah. But the more it went on, it became clear. These people were dangerous. They were stockpiling guns. It was really frightening. Oh man. If you haven't seen it, you got to watch it. Wild, wild country. I think it's on Netflix. Please watch it. 
I think it's like a five-part series. We watched it like almost every night. I think we were through it in seven days. It was so good. It's incredible. <laughs> It'll blow your mind. After every episode towards the end, you're like, what? When you see what the next one might be about, you're like, what? Are you kidding me? Now, this group, this group, I don't know that sex was forbidden. In fact, I rem- I remember certain things from the documentary that there was quite promiscuous things going on quite a bit. It was the opposite. Yeah, yeah the, it was, whereas it was Heaven's, the opposite. Whereas Heaven's oh. Gate was no sex, uh, the Rajneesh right. Purim people were like, everybody's game. Everybody, just right. just just dogpile, which was kind of like... Yeah. They they showed the they showed the footage of their bizarre ceremonies, their sex ceremonies. It was frightening. And then I kind of was like, maybe the old people are right here. This is kind of strange. I wouldn't want my kid to be walking down the street and have that going on. Because eventually what they did is they took over the town of Wasco County. Because through some well, litigation. Yeah, they eventually like elected officials. I, how much should we give away? Like it doesn't even sound like the real story, does it? I think I think like, we're I, watching like, like looking it up simultaneously. Like, is this like a mockumentary? Is this real? Even if we give away every detail, it's not enough to keep people from it's watching because to to watch it happen. This t- this quiet town in Oregon, what was like a hundred people, something like yeah, it wasn't two hundred fifty people was completely inundated by long haired, dirty hippies. And, th- well, the- and then they bring in like you know homeless people, and it oh just, yeah, it's crazy. And I just. <laughs> From and this is where I'm going to try to tie it in back into my experience, and I'm not going to say that that the church I grew up in was a cult. I will say it had cult like qualities, right? And I watched people that I know and love embrace really strange ideas, stuff that would rip a family apart, and did rip families apart because yeah. it was so off the reservation. Like rational people are like, where are you in your life where you think this is the solution? And I guess that's why I'm kind of fascinated with this subject, this kind of cult thing, because I was yeah. I was pretty close. And I will say, I where I grew up might not I was definitely cult like. We visited places that were straight up cults, communes up in up in Illinois, communes of like trailer okay. parks where like all these people would be. And I'm not going to mention the name, but yeah, it was like. There was that weird sex repression going on. Just there was a lot of fear of that kind of thing in America that, during that time too. Just really weird vibes. And I remember going up to this commune. And it may still be up there. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't been up that way in years. There was more that there was more than a handful of people in this place, and they had conferences. And you'd go to these conferences, and there would be all this weird stuff going on. And at the time, mm-hmm. you're a kid. You think, well, this this I guess this is what we do on Saturday night. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, of course you would. You know, you you didn't have any other reference point, and right? and hence where I wrote "Alone on the Moon" to tie it all in back to the original uh, story. Uh, interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. If you if you don't know what we're talking about, you got to go check out the episode about um, "Alone on the Moon." It's a song that that we released with our band last uh, summer. So what? Last fall. What was your experience with cult like situations? I mean, obviously we're not. I I know I don't want to drop labels on stuff, but you I know you were in some stuff that was definitely sketchy. I don't know if you want to go so far as to say it was a cult, but there were certainly certainly elements of the group that were yeah not not kosher. No, it's it's absolutely true. Um, 
it's it's interesting because like as i've had more distance from those memories like whenever i stopped and i don't think about them all the time but whenever i stop and think about those moments like i do find different reframing and and seeing different things in it but but what i can say is that i think i think overall inside of a really good thing inside of a, a community of of people um in this church specifically where i was at inside this community of people that like really cared about each other and would help each other through anything whether they need to move or you know family assistance or go and like do something in the community and change lives you know for the better like providing groceries or yep. you know any act of service that only betters everybody yeah that stuff was absolutely there but I think what it did sometimes is I think that there's a lot of room for pride to sneak in. And, you know, I am, I wouldn't say that I'm immune to this either. Like there's things I look back and, and have learned from myself, but what I can say is that the community that I was in, it did allow for certain types of behavior from leadership to exist and to be prevalent. And there was a lot of, of interfering with thought processes and uh, loyalties without getting too far into it. And one of the things that was used to drive that home is something I see as a common denominator between these other cults and things we talked about. And that's with um, not only just controlling sexual thought and, and things like that, but like controlling with music. And it was a very simple thing. And I don't even know that it was even originally a nefarious idea, but the idea of, uh, well, here's what it was for me. You tell me if it was similar for you. Okay. Um, growing up, it was like, I would hear at church, you shouldn't listen to music that wasn't created by other Christians. Yep. Because, yeah. And I think it stems back from the idea of what the Bible talks about, like being un unequally yoked, which is this old illustration. If you have like two oxen and you put like the harness around their neck, um, it's a yoke right? That's what that harness that holds them in place are. And if you had two oxen that didn't know how to work together, then you couldn't drive your cart straight. And it yeah. was this illustration. If you're with someone that believes differently than you do, you're going to try and go off different directions. And you won't be able to get anything done. Which is something they use as far as even dating. Don't be unequally yoked. If you're not dating someone who believes pretty much exactly like you, it's not going to work out. My experience with music as control was, I don't know, I don't know if you'll be able to reference this, but when I was leaving the group that I was that I grew up in, I got a book and it talked about various ways of controlling minds or group think or some like things like that. And one of the things they said was repetition, repeating the same. Yeah. And we've seen that. And I'm not going to mention any names, but in in the news, if you hear it enough, you believe it. Yeah, the idea that if I if I say it enough times, it becomes real. Right. Well, what we would do at the behest of the leader of the church was. If there was a sense that the congregation was not participating enough, as almost like a weird punishment, we would be required as a group to sing the same song over and over and over till people got into it. Really strange. <laughs> do you have a reference for that? Well, yeah. I mean, I absolutely do. Like, um, it was there like was some countless times that I've been a part of a, a band playing on stage at the church and, and leading songs and they're being like, um, now I went to a charismatic church for a while, which is like 
came out of like the Pentecostals, which some people call like the Holy Rollers. Kind of, kind of wild. It's kind of wild. I'll, I'll, I'll say it for you. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, it's a style of church that exists out there. Um, and this one was kind of similar to that kind of a thing. And I remember like sometimes playing the same four chords over and over and over and over and over and and over and over and over again for probably 25 minutes. Yep. Same here. I, cause I people prayed down in the front, you know, cause I was on the church band. I get what you're saying, but there would actually be kind of like an aggression to the leadership where I grew up at, where it was like, you are, you guys aren't closing your eyes. You're not raising your hand. So we will literally sing. And I'm going to use the, Jesus loves me. The most simple song I can think of ad nauseum for 15 minutes until people raise their hands and close their eyes. It's almost like a punishment and music should be the exact opposite. Unless you're trying to like get in a hostage situation, trying to get somebody out of a house, play Slayer for him for like 40 minutes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that's part of what offends us about this idea of using music, right? Because now look, it's completely understandable that music would be used for this. This is power part part of the power and magic of music is that it has the ability to move you as a listener um, just by the simple fact of it existing and entering into your ears and being heard. That's why it's used in, in movies. Like some of the best music in the world is used to like underscore a scene that like helps tie everything together. Like when the music gets scary, you know, something's about to happen or when it, you know, it's romantic. There's a certain kind of music with that. It's also, you know, um, prevalent in all different types of like uh, genres, like rock and pop and, you know, everything that's out there to communicate ideas. Yep. So it's natural and there's nothing wrong by the way with like music being continually played under you know in the situation where I'm describing to kind of like bring up um to, to increase the, you the know, vibes it, to, to yeah. Yeah, it to increase the vibes. It's like it, it kind of unites people in a feeling. Um but I will tell you this. I didn't know I was going to talk about this. But I will say Ooh, that for for a long time um, I would, I led a, a worship service at a church and I really enjoyed it. I, I think that it would be, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, situation to be in. And there were some really great times that happened, um, through that. I think ultimately for me, what I realized is that I liked performing on a stage and doing a context of rock music and songs much more than that. And so when, when I started to realize that some of this stuff could be used to manipulate people and to manipulate an, an emotion, it didn't really sit well with me personally to be pulling on people's heartstrings um, and maybe not seeing it or believing or fully experience it myself. Does that make any sense? Like, like I have to believe it to do it. And so I eventually went into doing live performance where I could put on a show and it has an agenda and it's not, you know, it's not, it can't be confused on what that agenda is. No, um, no, I, you know I agree because one of the main reasons I quit playing in the church band was it felt hollow to me and everybody's different. And please, if you play in a church band, and you're listening to this, don't stop because I say this. I don't think they will. Absolutely. If it, no, if, no, I still have friends that, that do this very thing and they're amazing at it. If know? it fills your soul and makes your, your spirit happy, however you want to put it, do it by all means. For me, it began it began to feel hollow when I was basically the soundtrack to somebody trying to manipulate people into the right mood and kind of sledgeham yeah. sledgehammering people when they didn't really feel it. 
Right. And I, I, I love, I love music. I just didn't feel like I could express myself in that situation. Now, there's some idea, ideological things, reasons why. But once again, the reason I left was I felt, I felt used. I felt like I was being used as a tool of somebody else, not, not playing music because I wanted to, being played music because I was told to and told what to do and how to do it. And music, God, you can't, you don't fence me in, as they say. It's like I wanted to do other things, and I did to go. I did go on to do other things, and I'm. I will say this: I'm. I'm happy for the time that I was in the church band because it, it taught me how to work with people. It taught me how to be on stage, even among, even if there was only 20 people there. It, I learned from it. But music should not be a sledgehammer to beat people into submission. And I felt like that's kind of, it wasn't all the time, but there, there, there were times I felt, I felt like a hypocrite. I felt, because I wasn't into it either. I'm like, this song, it's not good. It's not a good song. The, the band isn't good. To expect people to get into a band, the church band I played in was not good. Um, the drummer. Well, I think it also says more about um, the people um, that that were using you. Yes. Right. Like, like that's what I want to shine the light on. Like again, like I think the whole reason we we're even talking about this is because we identified that music. Because I can see it in these other things that we were talking about. These other, you know, Jonestown. Um, we didn't even talk about Charles Manson yet, and about how, you know, he used music to unite like his followers. And actually, the the Beach Boys even recorded one of his songs. That's crazy to me. Insane. In, insane. They recorded on their 2020 record, and it was called uh, "Never Learn Not to Love," written by Charles Manson. He, now, I mean, he lived with Dennis Wilson for a while. Crazy. And once again, I said to you earlier in the day, I said, how could you meet that guy and not feel the malevolence coming off him? Like, if, if, he, gave, if he gave me a song, I would say, nope, nope. <laughs> Even if I knew I could make a million bucks with it, Charles Manson gives me a song. Like, like I said, I don't need to know. Don't tell me the name. Not back in 1970. He gives me a song. I look that dude in the eye, and I'm like, nope, I want nothing to do with this guy. Nope. Just I think that's what Dennis Wilson started to see, by the way, him. And uh, he was living with uh, Terry Melcher, I think was his name. who was a producer and and uh, and he was going to produce uh, Charles Manson, then decided not to. <laughs> I think for those very reasons. Actually, um, yeah, man. I mean, that was part of the reason. Um, if you look into the story without getting too far into it, like that the house up on Cielo Drive. I mean, that was the house that Dennis Wilson and Terry Melcher lived in. Charles Manson was going there because he lived there in the first place from what I understand. So crazy. Right. But the point that I was bringing up, but making by bringing him up was that, you know, the idea that these tools that can tug at people's heartstrings, um, that they get in the wrong hands. It's like, you know, a a gun in the hand of a madman, you know, it can be used to sway people. And that's where the finger pointing, if there is any finger pointing needs to happen, especially as you try to unpack in your own life, the, the weirdness that comes from being raised that way that I don't even think, you know, I, I know that there has to be millions of people out there that understand this experience, but not everybody else, not everybody in the world will know what it is. Cause some people didn't even grow up with that even being a thing. They're like, yeah, music is music. Um, there's no difference. It's just all music. You know, I didn't grow up that way. I, that's what I think now. But you know what was one of my gateway drugs? Tell like, me. I really want to know. Actually, let me let me let me ask you first. What was okay? So let me set this up. So like we're talking about being influenced with the music we listen to. 
if I wasn't listening to music created by um, people that thought the way that, that I was raised, then I wasn't allowed to listen to it. And I would sometimes, this, I know this sounds, but I would feel shame for listening to music that wasn't written by other Christians in this yeah, context. Yeah. Like, like the Beatles was one of those for me, but that's not what really broke the bank. What was it for you that like kind of. Contrary to popular belief, I'm not a huge metal head. I love metal. Uh, but but Slayer and Metallica were not on my radar. That they were a little farther down the road. Oasis was the band for me. The Beatles yeah. led me to Oasis, and Oasis was something that was happening in ninety six, ninety five, ninety seven. They weren't Christians. They were the exact opposite. They were drunk derelicts from England. Yeah. But I I appreciated their songwriting, and I liked their swagger and. People can de- to, can debate all night long whether Oasis was a ripoff or whether they were punks or whatever you want to call them, but that was that was the the key that unlocked modern music for me. If you want to say, because Oasis, as foul as they were, their music was pretty G rated. There was I don't think they ever really cussed in their songs. Not not in any of the records I had growing up. Oasis definitely because I could kind of get away with that and around my parents because they didn't really say anything too jacked up you know what i'm saying <laughs> but oasis led me to Soundgarden, which led me to rage against the machine which led me to metallica which led me to slayer which led me to alanis morissette Suddenly that world has exploded man and, but, there's so many ways to go from that but i gotta tell you okay this is kind of a sub note oasis was the big one but something else something that got through to me and you're gonna laugh i, I mentioned it a second ago Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill. That album was on everywhere. And I that got into my bloodstream. It got into my bloodstream. And so if you wanna if you wanna just put put a random face on it, because Oasis, I'm pretty hardcore into them. Um, but Alanis Morissette was around that same time and it made me go, Holy crap, there's some really good music out here. And I I know the guys can laugh at me, whatever. Screw you, that was a good album. Jagged Little Pill was one of the best albums made in the 90s. Oh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, it goes on and on and on. The 90s exploded for me. 1995. In 95, when Jagged Little Pill came out, there's so many great records that came out in 95, 94, and, and 95. Now, some would argue, you know, obviously they were, some of these weren't necessarily true grunge records anymore. Like the industry had taken over, alternative music was a buzz phrase at the time. And there was a lot of bands that got pulled in because of the Seattle sound yeah. that may or may not have, have deserved to be there. But say what you will about that Jagged Little Pill record, but it is amazing. Did you know it was just turned into a stage show, too? No, I'm not surprised. I actually have huge respect for Alanis Morissette. I actually I bought her latest album for my lady. She loves it. Um, nice. It's got a song called The Reasons I Drank on it, which is <laughs> pretty great. <laughs> but yeah, so Oasis and Alanis Morissette. What, what was, your, what was your, your key that unlocked the rest of music for you? I, I think I know, well, I think I know what you're going to say, but... Just say it, and I'll tell, I'll tell you if I'm right or not. Well, I will, I will say this. Um, the beginning of it was definitely uh, the Beatles and the music that my dad would bring home. But I think my own independent, and I bet you my friends at the time, they would know I didn't know these records at the time. They would be like, it would just blow their minds. And it, I, admittedly, it was a little bit weird not to know them. Um, but I'm going to drop some, some, some 90s uh, records here. So... When so I went so when I transferred to my school that I went to um, in Ferguson, Florissant, Missouri, I went to McClure. 
Um, I enrolled into that school uh, later. Um, it was still before school started, but a lot of the classes and options had been filled. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of uh, choices for the electives. And two things really stood out uh, for my electives. I signed up for a band class, there you which go. when on my first day, it just didn't work out. I was like, <laughs> I don't know if I want to do this. They, they, they switched me to choir instead. And then that was great. So that worked out. Um, and then though, the other one was I took a drafting class. Like the weird choice, right? But yeah. like, I like to draw and I would do floor plans and stuff like just kind of like, just do that kind of thought. I thought it was interesting. Yeah. And so I took this drafting class. So the drafting class uh, was down um, with all the other shop classes. So wood shop was right next door to my room. And my drafting class was in this big, huge, like room with tall ceilings. And we would just sit there at our old school drafting desks and draw, use our protect tractors and compasses and everything to to make our floor plans and while we did that our teacher had a boom box up in the front and he was like anything Sweet. that you want to bring bring it to class and we'll play it just put the stack of tapes there and we'll just play them while we draw dc <laughs> talk yep and uh so most of the time i wouldn't even bring anything most <laughs> of the time i would just listen to the records that everybody else would bring which was like purple by stone temple pilots oh sweet and 10 by by pearl jam amazing album in utero uh super unknown um dookie like all these records um i you know and it wasn't like i didn't know anything about them i would still watch mtv every once in a while i just didn't have cable at home i would watch it at my grandparents house of course but this drafting class became this point where like i got a chance to just listen to these whole albums and really see that there was a whole other world out there and it really took root admittedly i was in like constant war with him myself for like for liking these things because yeah. it really was like you know it was like i shouldn't be listening to this but i like it and uh, eventually you know let me down the path to like you know break out of that that just limited way of thinking it's kind of hard to be a musician and a producer or songwriter and only give yourself like five bands to listen to <laughs> no i mean i would say though i've said before and i stole this from noel gallagher of oasis and who I mean, he probably stole it from somebody else he who writes the best songs has the best record collection. It's true, man. Where I finally broke away, it was just actually, um, I think, deciding for myself that I wanted to be a performer and an artist. And then suddenly the floodgates just opened. I, I listened to everything. Um, that's when I, I had listened to bands like Radiohead before. Um, but when I really fell in love with their music it was right around that time. Oh, how did I forget um, Radiohead, dude? Oh my God. But, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really discover Radiohead till the early two thousands. I think that was probably when I discovered them too. I mean, I was familiar with like the Benz yeah. and I was familiar with like Pablo Honey, you know, obviously like hearing that stuff, um, but I didn't own any other records. <laughs> Fake Chinese rubber plant. That's pretty good, J Mac. It is a beautiful song too. Like, I mean, how about Street Spirit on that record? I mean, the Benz is just an amazing. Dude, album. we. I'm. I'm telling you, we started talking about cults. We're talking about music now. Once again, this is a music podcast. We're gonna go all over the place. When I worked at the the grocery warehouse where I worked for 20 years before I got Parkinson's, couldn't work there anymore. By the way, they 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 eliminated my job, so it doesn't matter anyway. Uh. I used to go in on night shift and I would bring my boombox and there was this guy, I'll call him Eddie Spaghetti. That's what they called him because he dropped like three three pallets full of ragu sauce all over the floor. <laughs> so Eddie, Eddie Spaghetti used to let me raid his CD collection and that's where I was introduced to the Black Album. 
That's ah, the where I was introduced to great. White Zombie. Yep. Rage Against the Machine. Really edgy stuff. And I got to tell you, I realized how bad the music, the Christian music I was listening to sounded compared to this stuff. It was just, it was just, and I'm not saying that the Christian music I listened to was bad because they were Christians. I just feel like this is a subject for a whole other show. Christian music is not about anything but selling records to kids who've never heard mainstream music. And what I was realizing... It's just a genre. Yeah, and what I was realizing is that every band that I listened to was copying somebody else like five years behind what was going on in the yeah. in the regular world. So that blew my mind. And I remember, I remember one time I said, they, there was a Slayer CD. <laughs> and I said, what about that? And they go, no, no, you don't want to listen to that. You're Christian. You'll hate that. I said, give it to me. Because I was I was almost like a dare. I'm like, all right. I think it was Diabolus and Musica, the devil in music. I turned it on. Two songs in, I turned that crap off. I'm like, I'm going out. I'm going out. <laughs> but yeah, yep. but, but it was it was a mind-blowing experience to go from the Christian music of the church, slightly cult-flavored, to music that was all over the place. Well, I don't think that this was the experience, by the way, of every church kid growing up. No, either. absolutely like, not. Absolutely not. And and I I do want to take some time um, to acknowledge uh, some amazing, like like no no praise held back, some amazing records um, and writers that have come out of the CCM scene, like Christian music. Is, has, there's some the, great there's some great stuff in Christian music. Not not yeah, lately. it's a, it's the a total sub uh, sub uh, uh, industry. Uh, actually, it's it's really its own industry now. Um, that it, that started off as another genre, and there's like so many other things, and there's a lot of crossover. I mean, like a lot of these like Christian music labels are owned by the big guys and, and everything, and it's, it's it's all about the business of making music. Yeah, and some of the most amazing records that I've ever heard came out of artists that were signed to these Christian labels too. Um, for example, for me, the record that made me, by the way, want to write music was a record that came out in 1993 um, by a guy named Phil Keggy, um, who guitar players know he's one of the best. Um, it was produced by a guy named Lynn Nichols, um, who has worked with a lot of people. And in fact, he was had a band in the, the late 80s, early 90s called Chagall Guevara that was signed to MCA Records. Um, they had an amazing lineup. I mean, it was, you know, um, Steve Taylor was the lead singer. Um, uh, Dave Perkins was on guitar. Uh, Mike Mead was on drums and Wade James was on bass. I mean, just an amazing lineup. They kind of got the short end of the stick because grunge hit and it, it kind of just changed music. You yeah. know, they were a little bit more like influenced by like XTC and bands like that. Yeah. Anyway. So, so Lynn Nichols produced this record. Phil Madeira is on it. Jimmy Abag is on it. Um, John Mark Painter is on it. Wade James playing bass, John Safara on drums awesome awesome album amazing record they put out it, it was released as another record called blue on epic i think that that it was like a bid towards getting into like the big main market didn't work out for them you're talking about but my Cr point you're, ta you're talking about crimson and blue phil keggy's album right yeah did i not say the name no you maybe didn't. i didn't Crim no you didn't okay crimson and blue all these guys are on this record crimson and blue um so that record is amazing um and then you can't like not talk about a guy like uh, Rich Mullins or a guy like Mark Hurd, who were just equally amazing songwriters um, and maybe even better than guys like Larry Norman. I don't know. 
but just as impactful and uh, influential. And the list goes on. Gordon Kennedy, Wayne Kirkpatrick, these guys that played with Michael W. Smith from Peter Gabriel's band, from Amy Grant, the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Uh, uh, um, ben Montench played on one of her records. I mean, it's just it's just insane. Like for, for us as consumers to divide all these things up and use it to control each other, it's just really screwed up. Like that's not the point of it. It's about making great music. I don't know what the scene's like now. I can only imagine it's like the rest of the music scene. It's probably pretty pop dominated. But Larry Norman coming out of the Jesus movement in the 70s. I still listen to his stuff now. I'm not religious by any stretch of the imagination, but I love to listen to old Larry Norman records. Resurrection Man. I'm not a Yeah. I'm not going to say they're on par with some of the the great rock bands of the 80s and 70s. But the vocalist Glenn Kaiser and the and I think he plays lead guitar too, just amazing blues voice, amazing blues guitar playing. I don't have a lot else on the Christian music front, but I I did like Michael W. Smith. I've got his live set album. Say what you want about him. Maybe he was a little too George Michael or whatever. Whatever you want to say. Great, I think he's great, awesome. Great voice, great songwriting. My lady hates it when I turn on his record. Striper, let's not forget Striper. I think Striper's great too, but I just want to say Michael W. Smith really is one uh, is an is an amazing songwriter. And he performer. is. He really is. He, he, I mean, he's he really is great. I just want to let people know that we're talking. It's kind of weird that we're talking about Christian music and cults in the same episode, but I think it kind of ties in with the fact that cults or people or groups with cult like tendencies use music as a tool to either constrict bludgeon or just shame people we were talking about u2 earlier today u2 is a very spiritual band i don't understand how someone who who considers themselves to be a christian or religious cannot listen to u2 and find something in there that's that speaks to them i think bono considers himself a christian yeah but right so like but they're just they're they're a mainstream band that it's it look it's it's no different than george harrison writing my sweet lord no it's not or um, uh, you know, Cat Stevens changed his name to Yousef in, in writing about his beliefs or any other artist out there that's like written about um, uh, what, what's his name? Um, Duncan Sheik writing from like a Buddhist perspective. It's no different than that. No, it's they, not. They should have a right as a songwriter to sing about whatever they want. And what I guess if I could say one thing, it's, it's, a, it's a shame that that musicians that are Christians have to be pigeonholed into that that sector or that industry because we we're Christians and yet we or we were Christians growing up. And I would say that if we would have known more about the music going on at the time, we would only made us better musicians, which if if you're, if you're a Christian and you're striving to further your, your faith or express your faith, wouldn't you want to listen to more music? So you could, you could, like I said, steal from the Absolutely. best, steal from the best or well, borrow from the best. I totally agree, and but I think this again. This this goes back to um, who's ever pulling the strings. Like the reason that we're talking about cults and Christian music in the same episode is this: we were talking about um, something that is beautiful and independent, and for everybody being used to um, push an agenda or or control people. Yeah, and for us, that just happened to be Christian music. Yeah, for someone else, it might have been um, the way they dress. 
or, or, or some other form of you know, the way that they think where they grew up in you know, St. Louis is a very segmented town. Like, you, you know, the, the most common question is where did you go to high school? Yep. Cause people think they knew something about you, about where you went to high school. So all these things are mixed together. It's not against Christian music, but that just, that's, that's what it happened to be for us. And I think the point that we're trying to make is to step outside of of the con- that context, if, if you really want to know and kind of widen your net on what's po- on what possible what on what the possibility is, um, why would you stick to one format to do that? Why would you just put yourself in one box if you really want to be creative? Pull in everything, then well, spit it out, rearrange it, make it something new. Well, and I would say this: if music is the great wall breaker, music. That's right. Music, and I've talked about my sitar teacher. My sitar teacher was probably the single greatest influence on me getting out of the group that I was in, the religious group I was in, because he he showed me a larger world, the great Imrat Khan. I miss him every day. Love you, teacher. So music is, it's powerful, dude, and it can be used to control or it can be used to set free. I love that, man. It is so true. Um, And you know what it did for us is it set us free. Didn't it? I made that up just now. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, you're gonna have to put that into a song, man. I think so. I loved <laughs> I love doing this podcast with you, dude. This is the highlight of my week. I miss my old podcast. I, I miss my old podcast partner, Adam. Hopefully he's he's in, in my bunker somewhere, uh smiling at me, laughing Absolutely. at laughing at my jokes. But dude, this is amazing. <laughs> and we're starting to get some followers and it's kinda of, it's exciting and I love it. And it's it's like I literally get up on Saturday thinking about what I'm going to talk about on Sunday night. Yeah, I love that, man. I mean, you know, we're just trying to, like, share life, right? It just happens to be through the lens of music for us because, like, that's what what we love and we have love for like you know that's been one of the most consistent things in my life has been music. <laughs> I've told I've said before that music saved my life. Yeah. When I get up in the morning, the first thing I do is either put on Spotify or Alexa, use Alexa to turn on something on Pandora or turn on a turn on a record. Music gets me through the day. Yep. Talking about music, playing music, thinking about music, listening to music. It's amazing, dude. And I'm glad I'm glad that we reconnected after all these years. I'm I'm sure people are like, oh stop it. Stop, get a room. <laughs> get a room. But it's fun, dude. This is so much fun, and I cannot wait to see you again in person. Hopefully, we can get the vaccine going, and we can uh, you can come over. Maybe we do like a podcast from the bunker. Yeah, man, it would be great. And then one of these days, maybe you come out here, and we could do something from here as well. That would be amazing. Yeah, Got- well, you know, it's it's true, man, and I think that that's what that's what uh, you know. Hopefully, hopefully, I I hope people connect to the to that idea that you know. Here we are, two guys. We've lived uh, different things, different experiences coming in. But you know what I mean? Now we're talking about this. And, you know, it's really about like getting people to just work together on on something amazing. And I think that's that's why music can be such a double-edged sword, right? I'm a big believer in, as a podcaster for a decade now, I'm a big believer in people love listening to people being genuine. Friends talking, right. friends having conversations. Right. Some of my favorite, com- some of my favorite podcasts are not glitzy, glamour, wish bang, high effects. It's friends talking, 
And yeah, how much better is that when you get two extremely intelligent people like us talking? <laughs> For two tape decks and a mixing board, I'm Jay Mack. And I'm Sam Wade. Say it. Stay, Stay cosmic. cosmic.